Romans chapter 15, uh, and we read from verse 5. Hear the word of God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles uh, may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. But, but for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem 
bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I know that's a long passage, and I know you may be thinking, isn't that just Paul like, describing his travel plans? This doesn't sound that exciting this morning. Let me tell you, this is really exciting, genuinely. This is, in some ways, coming to the climax of the book of Romans um, and why it was written. So please do um, tune in um, this morning as we look at God's word. But let me lead us in prayer before we turn there. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know exactly where our hearts are at just now. You know whether we're grieving or rejoicing. You know whether we're weary or buzzing. You know all the things on our minds and hearts from last week. And we pray very much that you would help us to do what Jesus said was most important and sit at your feet and listen. And we pray you would transform our hearts by your gospel. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, let me say a welcome. If this is your first time at Chalmers, we're really glad to have you with us. We've been working our way through this, this great letter to the Roman church um, over the whole year, actually, in small groups, and, and then just doing bits of it, um, preaching up front. Um, and uh, it's an exciting morning this morning, because in lots of ways, we are going to see from Paul's own pen why he wrote this letter. That's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, which I hope will be uh, exciting for us. But just before we get there, I wanted to mention that I, I was reading an article about lockdown. Um, seems to be a lot of articles reflecting on lockdown. I guess there's nothing else to reflect on. But I was, I was reading an article about lockdown that said, um, it wasn't a Christian thing, but it was saying one of the key factors in how people have coped with it or not coped with it is the extent to which they have a sense of purpose. I was struck by that. I was struck by it, I think, because I think it's true of general life, actually. I think it's one of the reasons why people can find a, a period of unemployment a real challenge. Or when the next step in life is uncertain. Maybe we've come to the end of studying and we're thinking, what's next? Or why retirement can be such a challenge. What's next? It's why I think acutely in, in this pandemic that the kind of uncertain horizon which becomes a blank horizon because you don't know what you can plan or do or hope for 
What are we doing with our lives? What's the reason to get out of bed each morning? What's the point? What's my purpose? I'm mentioning that issue not because I'm about to give some kind of life coaching on how to survive lockdown. I'm doing that because Paul tells us what his purpose in life is in this passage. Did you notice that? Verse 20, he's going to tell us what his ambition is in life. Verse 20. And I think being given purpose and hope in life is one of the great blessings of being a Christian. I wonder if we kind of take it a bit for granted, those of us who've been Christians for a while, but if you're looking in, this is one of the blessings of being a Christian. Both a kind of long-term hope So um, knowing that God has promised a future where we'll be at peace with him, at peace with one another, and in a peaceful new creation free of suffering. I mean, there's that long-term hope, the kind of end purpose. But there's even purpose in the meantime, the short term, while we're groaning for that day in all the ups and downs of life, the sorrows and struggles of life. Even now there's a purpose, and that is a wonderful blessing. And the reason the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write about his life purpose to the church in Rome is because he wants us to get on board. Paul wanted the Roman church to get on board with him. The Holy Spirit wants Chalmers Church to get on board, to get on board with Paul because Paul is on board with what God is doing in his world. God's purpose for creation, God's purpose for humanity. So this is actually quite a kind of big, big picture kind of morning. And we are going to get down to the nitty-gritty of travel plans and, and what you pray for and things. But, but the, the start of the passage is big picture. So let's dive in. We've got lots to look at. I've got two points. You'll see them on the back. There's an outline uh, if you want that on the back. There are two points. And the first point is this. And everything else hangs off this. So it's worth tuning in for verses 8 to 13. My first point is this. God's plan was always multinational worship through Jesus Christ. That's our first point. God's plan was always multinational worship through Christ. I think looking at verses 8 to 13, it's fairly clear, actually. It's fairly straightforward that that's what Paul is saying. And we're carrying on from last week. That's why I I stuck verse 5 from last week's passage on the, on the reading. Um, so verse 5, this was last week, when we were thinking about multicultural unity. So verse 5, to this, to this mixed church culturally in Rome, Paul said, um, uh, Paul desired that they would live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that multicultural, multinational, multiracial, multiethnic worship that we saw last time. And it's still in view as we start today's passage in verse 8. So in verse 8, Jesus came as a servant to the circumcised. That is, he came to serve Israel, God's Jewish people, um, to save them. And then verse 9 adds, in order that the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish nations might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus came to save Jews and Gentiles, i.e. every nation, all nations. Actually, verse 8 makes it clear this was the only way 
to keep the promises God made to the patriarchs. That is, the promises he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, um, uh, promises to Abraham and his family thousands of years before now, that, that, that his family, the circumcised Jewish nation, would be, his, would be God's people, and Abraham would be the father of many nations, Genesis 17. That is, the whole world would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. It's explicit there in the promises, right at the start of the Bible. And so Jesus comes to prove that God keeps his word. Verse 8 puts it, to show God's truthfulness. Jesus came as a saviour, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And by the way, if you are kind of looking into Christian things this morning, just kind of curious if there's anything in it, um, uh, one of, one of the chats I sometimes have when, when looking at the evidence, for example, for Jesus uh, when he walked around on the earth, uh, sometimes people will say, well, I just wish there was something I could see today. I just wish there was some evidence today that, that, that God is alive and real and working through Jesus. Well, the Bible says, this passage says, the church is the evidence that God keeps his promise. The fact that around the world, in multiple nations, there are people worshipping Jesus the people from all sorts of backgrounds are coming together with one voice to worship Jesus, worship God through his King Jesus, well, that is a sign of God's truthfulness. It's exactly what he said at the start of the Bible, was his plan. And to prove that this really has always been God's plan, to kind of ram it home, Paul then just does a bonanza of Old Testament Bible quotes. Did you notice that? Verse, um, verse 9 through to 12 um, and he's going all over the Old Testament. He's actually very deliberately picking from each section of the Old Testament. So we've had Genesis. He also does the history books, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. That's the whole lot. Something from every part of the Old Testament. And the consistent message all the way through is that God's plan, God's purpose, was to have the nations praising him. So let's go through. Um, just track with me. Verse 9. This is from 2 Samuel, so a history book. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, literally the nations, and sing your name. That's God's King David speaking, saying that he will praise um, God among the nations. What about verse 10? Well, this is from the Lord, Deuteronomy 32. Moses saying, rejoice, O Gentiles, nations, with his people. Verse 11 has Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, nations, and let all the peoples extol him. And then Isaiah, one of the major prophets, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles, the nations, hope. You see, it's all over the place. It's all over the Old Testament. If you've ever thought that kind of it's, it's in the New Testament that suddenly God's plan is international and multicultural, that's just not true. It's all over the Old Testament, says Paul. Right from the beginning, Genesis. Right from the, the law with Moses. Through the histories with 2 Samuel. Into the Psalms and the prophets. And actually, it's pretty specific how it's going to happen. I wonder if you notice that in the final quotation from Isaiah. It will be through this root of Jesse. Now, there's a slightly strange phrase. Jesse was the, the dad of, of David, the father of David, God's chosen king. And so it's saying from that family tree, there's going to be a king 
who will save the nations, who will bring the nations to worship. In fact, tonight, uh, in tonight's service, if you, if you am listening online, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 7, where God makes that promise that to David, to his family, that the throne that God blesses the world through, it'll be, it'll be his family that that person comes from. That's why actually the first quotation of this list, verse 9, is in David's mouth. So 277 starts the list, Isaiah finishes the list. They're both about, it will be through the king that this international um, worship mission happens, international rescue that turns um, people to worship God amongst the nations. So it was always God's plan to, to have a multinational church and just, just before we move on to point two, just one more thing to notice. Have you noticed the tone of it? So um, the way that this king brings the nations to worship of God, what's striking is that it's not that they're bludgeoned into conformity by his sword. He does have the right to do that and actually has the power to do that as God's king. But did you notice the repeated call to rejoice nations with God's people, to hope in the king, verse 12. And then just look at verse 13, it's wonderful. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that in the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How is it? How is it that the promised king is going to bring the nations to this joy and peace, and hope. Well, through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus. This is what we've been seeing all the way through Romans. You, you probably, maybe, hopefully, I'm always, um, I'm always naively optimistic about how much we remember week on week from sermons, but, but maybe those, those words are ringing bells after a year in Romans. Joy, peace, hope. They're all over this letter as the things we, we benefit from when we trust in Jesus. See, the good news is that the king becomes, as verse 8 put it, a servant. That is, a suffering servant. He went to the cross to pay the price for our sin, to forgive us, to get us right with God, entirely because of what he does, not because of what we do. And this gospel is God's secret weapon. Well, it's not a secret anymore. It's, now, it's out there in the open weapon of to turn the world to worship to turn the nations to true worship. Paul said at the start of this letter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to save everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the nations, the Gentile. And here's the thing, it doesn't just save us out of the hole we were in. It's not just that we were in trouble when the gospel gets us out. That's true, that's the way the book starts. But it doesn't just do that, it, it brings us into something as well. It, it turns us to true worship of God. To put it another way, the, the gospel doesn't just forgive us, it transforms us, changes us from the inside out, gives us this peace and joy and hope in God, turns us into true worshippers. In lots of ways, that is the kind of story of Romans so far. So we got this week and we've got one, one week left, so it's a good time to be reflecting on kind of where have we come from and where are we finishing up in Romans in some ways, the story of Romans is a story of false worship turning into true worship. Or to put it another way, 
the unacceptable to God worship of humans. In chapter one, we, we saw this, how as human beings, we naturally, we latch on to created things. We put all of our hope and trust and de- dependence on created things. It might be another person, it might be ourselves, it might be some material thing, it might be some imagined worldview. But we put all of our hope and trust and worship and thankfulness into something that God has made in his world, not to the creator. That's false worship, idolatrous worship, and it, it, it rightly, in God's righteous justice, is an offense to him. It's unacceptable worship. But then the gospel brings us out of that, forgives us from that, and starts to turn our hearts to truly worship the living God. So chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, um, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. True worship, acceptable worship. That's where um, the book of Romans, and that's where the gospel brings us. And Paul knows that this means the gospel is kind of God's, God's secret weapon in the world. It's his power to turn people's lives around, to turn worship around. Which brings us on to um, point two, and why he wrote the letter. So, why did Paul write this letter to Romans? That's the kind of big picture of what God's doing in the world. But what's Paul doing in the world? And what's this letter of Romans doing um, in the Bible? Let's have a look. He says it explicitly. Verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Striking that. The Roman church, they were keen. They were doing well. They were fine. This isn't one of those letters that's a kind of emergency letter, kind of got to put things right. No, they were doing well. A keen Christian church. But verse 15, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now listen to this phrase. It's a strange one. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's a really striking few verses here. Uh, We've seen the Roman church were keen. They they were Jews as well as Gentiles, uh, lots of different backgrounds. Um, But Paul still wants to write the gospel to them, still wants to remind them of the gospel that they already believe. Because he knows the gospel doesn't just get us in the door, it's powerful to change us, transform us from the inside out. Let me put it another way. We are never too mature to spend more time thinking about the gospel. Never too mature to spend more time thinking about the gospel. And that's because the gospel can transform our lives more and more and more into true worship of God. On the outline, um, you'll see I've put some boxes and arrows and things. Um, And just to say, uh, I realize for some people, a picture helps. For other people, it it just doesn't. Um, My wife's one of the people it doesn't. She's often saying, I don't know really what's the point of that diagram. But anyway, if you are someone who likes diagrams, there's one. Um, The point is that the box at the top, the gospel of grace, is the kind of engine room of change in the Christian life. The gospel is the transformational power. It's the change center in our lives as God works by his power, by his spirit, to produce in our lives these three responses. So three things flowing out, particularly in this book. Um, I've just listed them there. So all life obedience, 
offering our whole selves in response to God's grace in the gospel. And then all nations witness, partnering together to reach the unreached. And then all types unity, so love in a church family across cultural lines. We've already been seeing lots of those kind of outboxes in the, in the recent weeks. They're all driven by the gospel. Now, we'll, 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 look at them, the, we'll look at what flows out in a moment, but I do just want to slow down on verse 16 um, t- to explain quite what Paul is saying about his job. So verse 16, Paul says he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the nations might be acceptable. It's perhaps a surprise that Paul describes himself as a priest here. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might think, oh no, hang on, only Jesus is the priest. We're not actually supposed to call church leaders, for example, priests, because we don't need anyone to stand between us and God. Jesus does that, and he does it completely. He's the complete priest. Uh, there's nothing more that needs to be done to get us right with God, to pay for our sins. To, even if we've had a terrible week, Jesus is enough. to to help us approach the throne of grace. But actually, in the Old Testament, there were two things priests did. They offered sacrifices for sins to atone, to make things right, and and Jesus has done all of that. They also did something else. They, They also just presented other kinds of offerings to God, thank offerings, free will offerings. They, they, They took the people and said, look, God, here's worship from the people for you. And Paul's picking up that image, not an offering to pay for sin, but just an offering of worship. He's picking up that image and saying, I'm that kind of priest. But the striking thing is how he does that. So did you see it? He's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. As in, Paul goes around with the gospel That's how he can present people from all over the place, all sorts of nations. That's how he can present them to God as an offering of acceptable worship, sanctified by the Spirit. So again, the gospel is the secret weapon for turning wrong worship into right worship, unacceptable worship into acceptable worship. And Paul wants the church he's writing to in Rome and this church here in Edinburgh to be more and more and more shaped by that gospel. And I hope actually, as we reflect back on what we've been hearing over recent months, I hope we've been seeing exactly this starting to happen in our lives. Actually, I hope we've been seeing the gospel change how we approach various things, all life obedience, and how we relate to other Christians, all all types unity. And today we're going to think quite a lot about All Nations Witness. Um, I've certainly been having some really encouraging chats with people along those lines. Um, so, um, I've had conversations with people who, uh, who are no longer coming to church thinking, what do I get out of it? Does this suit me? But are now thinking, how can I serve others? How can I encourage? How can I love? How can I um, outdo in showing honor to others? That's chapter 12. It flows straight out of the gospel others who are actively looking for hospitality opportunities, even though it feels a bit out of the, out, a bit unnatural. We're kind of out of the habit, aren't we, of showing hospitality, but we can start to get into it now, and, and I've, I've heard people who are kind of motivated to do that by the gospel. Others who, end of chapter 12, 
we're struck by how we're supposed to be gracious even when people are being mean to us. And so with difficult colleagues or bosses um, showing genuine grace. Still others I've heard um, who've stopped slagging off the government because Romans 13 says, honor those that God has put in authority even if we don't agree with every decision they make. Um, Others are starting to take um, battles with sin far more seriously to, to cast off um, uh, the works of the flesh, as Romans 13 put it. Others kind of waking up from sleepwalking into a relationship which would not be a way of worshipping God, and they, and they know it, but, but Romans and the gospel has been helping to say, actually, that's unwise. See, we've been seeing the gospel of grace shape us in all life obedience. That's exactly what Paul wanted for Rome um, and God wants for us. Christians are never too mature to be reminded of the gospel of grace and all its implications. Now, I'm not going to spend more time on all life obedience because it doesn't feature majorly in this passage, and we've thought a lot about it in chapters 12 and 13. Just to skip across to, to the third area, all types unity. Again, we've, we've seen lots of that if you've been around the last couple of weeks. Sorry if you haven't, um, uh, but uh, hopefully I'll say enough to, to catch you up. Um, We've seen lots of this, uh, how the gospel brings together people from different backgrounds. And we've been seeing that we need to bear with one another, even if we have different viewpoints or different even conscience um, uh, positions on certain non-gospel issues. We're to bear with one another and welcome one another. And actually, this issue of kind of cross-cultural unity is something that comes up in a big way in the last third of the passage. So just flick your eyes down to verse... um, 25, um, verse 25. Now, Paul really wants to go to Spain. We're going to come back to that in a moment in verse 24. But in verse 25, he says he's going to do a detour. He's got to do something else first. Verse 25, let me read from there. At present, he says, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor, among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul is going to head back to Jerusalem. This is the other way, the opposite way to Spain. Back to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. He's going to deliver a gift from the Gentile churches to the mostly Jewish churches in Jerusalem who are starving and persecuted, which is that gospel-powered unity again. I mean, Paul is striking how much he cares about it. He wants to reinforce this. He's willing to go himself, even though at the end of the passage you can see he's risking his life to do this. Uh, He's not very popular (laughs) in Jerusalem, to say the least. Um, And and it's striking, yeah, kind of his, his commitment to this I hope it's a challenge to us as well. I think the question of are we willing to partner with Christians beyond our church family, because this is some, some churches here helping some churches over there, I think is a challenge. Are we willing to partner with churches who are culturally different to us? Here the Gentile churches are supporting the Jewish Christians in need. It's not about our particular tribe. It's a wonderful thing seeing Redeemer going from us and flourishing, but I really hope we don't kind of only think in terms of our networks, the churches we're kind of like us and and from us, but actually we partner broadly and widely with those who share the same gospel and vision. 
On that note, in terms of different culture, it's a wonderful thing and joy to be partnering with Charleston Church in Dundee, a very different area from Morningside, no less needy in terms of the gospel and very needy in various practical ways. It is costly to do this kind of mission, uh, this kind of partnership. For Paul, it was dangerous, literally, risk to his life. And for some of our global partners, if you're new to Chalmers, you may not know this, but for some of our global partners, they are at risk. One of the things we pray for them is safety and security. They'd be able to stay where they are and that they'd be safe where they are as they try and share the gospel. Um, But it's a wonderful thing to partner, like Paul does, across these ethnic and cultural lines. Why is Paul doing that? Because he believes point one. He believes the first 10 minutes we were thinking about. He believes that the whole Bible has been saying that that God's determined to bring nations around his king to worship him. Paul really believes that. And so he's willing to commit himself to cross-cultural unity and partnership. Finally, though, let's let's spend our last remaining minutes um, uh, thinking about all nations' witness Um, which is the one we haven't heard much about so far in in Romans 12 to 16. Um, It's particularly a focus, I think, in this passage. Um, So it's there from uh, verses 17 to 24, all nations witness, and particularly reaching the unreached with the good news of Jesus. Again, Paul's motive here is the glory of God. Um, There's an American pastor, John Piper, who puts it like this, mission exists because worship doesn't. I love that phrase. It's well worth um, remembering. Mission exists because worship doesn't, or true worship doesn't. Every human being's a worshiper, but only if they've heard of Jesus can they be acceptable worship to the Lord, the Creator. And that drives Paul. He's ambitious that God would get the glory in the nations. Interesting question. Kind of when we're thinking about sharing the gospel or partnering with others who share the gospel, kind of what's our motive? I think it's easy to be driven by guilt, kind of, oh, really ought to do something. It's easy to be driven by um, compassion, kind of fear for people, knowing that they, they need forgiveness before meeting their maker. And that, that's a perfectly good motive. It's a loving motive. Actually, Paul's top-line motive, his biggest thing driving him out, was the glory of God in the nations. Zealous, ambitious for God's glory. He wants people to hear the name of Jesus. Wants others to be brought to this great purpose of every tribe and tongue worshipping God in one voice. Let's just have a look at it. Verse 20, how he puts it. Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it's written, those who've never been told of him will see. Those who've never heard will understand. That's another quote from Isaiah, showing this is God's plan all the way through. Uh, God's plan is that the unreached will be reached with the news of Jesus. As chapter 10 put it, how can they believe in Jesus if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if someone doesn't tell them? And how can someone tell them if they haven't been sent? Well, now here we are, Paul saying to a church, will you send me to Spain? I want your help so I can go on with the gospel. Um, and Paul is so pleased, proud even, to be involved in this work. Look at verse 17. I have reason to be proud of my work 
uh, for God. Or verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Like, he's driven by this. He's excited by it. He's even proud of it. We might be thinking, what? Hang on. Didn't chapter 12 say we're supposed to be sober-minded, not think too highly of ourselves? Aren't Christians supposed to be humble? Well, yeah, about ourselves, we're supposed to be completely humble. We've got nothing to offer except our sin. But when it comes to God's work, what God is doing in the world, well, it's entirely right to be, to be thrilled at the privilege of being involved in it. To have a purpose like that is a wonderful thing. So as verse 18 put it, I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Paul's confident in God and his gospel, not himself and his gifts. Now, what's happened already, like, like Paul's been going at this for a while. In verse 19, he's already gone from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, and uh, he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, that's not saying he's, he's, he's spoken to every single person in those regions. I think what he's saying is he's planted a church in each of the towns, so the churches can then get on with reaching that region. But verse 23, he does say, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Um, you see, he, his great desire is to go to the unreached, to people who just haven't heard the name Jesus, at least in their generation. Um, he wants to spread the gospel. And for him, that means Spain is on the agenda. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on the journey there. Or verse 28, I'll leave by, for Spain by way of you. And at this point, I think we do start to see how, kind of, how a church fits in with a pioneer missionary. See, not all of us are going to hear this passage today and think, right, that's it, I'm quitting my job, I'm going overseas, I'm going to go somewhere where people haven't heard the name Jesus. Not all of us will do that. Although, to be honest, I am praying that, I don't know, two or three of us might if we've got the gifts and the godliness and the love for the Lord Jesus, I'm praying that one or two might be really challenged what's stopping me doing this with my life. But actually, Paul's writing this not just to recruit one or two, but to recruit the entire church to this goal. Does that make sense? The whole Roman church he wants on board with this. What does that mean practically? Well, presumably money. Um, when he says, I want you to help me get to Spain... Travel isn't cheap. That will require resources. Accommodation will, will need provision, and both while he stays with them and, and as he goes on. He's also asking for prayer. Look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. I love that. I love that request. Even the Apostle Paul needed a church praying for him. I hope we know that our global mission partners need a church praying with them. That's why I really hope we come on Tuesday nights to the, the church prayer meeting. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Every month there'll be some update from our global partners and a chance to pray with them. This coming Tuesday, actually, um, we're going to have uh, our, our mission partners in Mali will be there. Um, live, actually, because of Zoom. We'll be able to hear from them and get some prayer updates. Um, that's not always a stable place it, uh, to be in the world but there's such gospel opportunity that they're involved in. And it'd be a great thing to be there and partner with them in prayer. But actually, as well as prayer, there's something else which has surprised me actually in the passage. You see, one of the biggest things Paul's asking for is mutual encouragement. That is genuine fellowship, support in the gospel. 
Um, it's really striking. Look at verse 24. He says he's going to go to Spain once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Striking. I don't really think of Paul like that. I think of him as kind of striding off by himself. But it's just not true when you look at the New Testament. He's hugely helped by having Christians around him, supporting him, talking to him, refreshing him in the gospel. It's there in verse 32 as well. Um, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That's why we get um, uh, global partners to come back and visit us and spend time being refreshed, both here at this church and with other partner ch- uh, churches. You see, Christian um, partnership, gospel partnership, is, is emphatically not just signing a check and forgetting. It's striving together, side by side, for the gospel. That's why we're so thankful for our global mission group who, who kind of act as the, the connection point between um, lots of our partners and, and charmers coordinate um, prayer requests back and forth and, and help host them when they're here. Paul says, partner together to reach the unreached. And I hope that encourages us that this is not something for the super keenies. It's just the normal Christian life. It's just normal that this flows out of the gospel. I hope it also encourages us that this, is, this isn't just about what do I do in my quiet time. I mean, I hope we, we do have a desire to think, how could I pray beyond this church, beyond Scotland, pray for the nations? If you want to do that, Operation World is a great book um, to, to give kind of information about how to pray for nations. Uh, all, our, all our global partners have prayer letters. We can subscribe to them. And please do get in, in touch if you want to be on the mailing lists. Um, but it's not just about our private praying. Remember, this is written to the whole church to say, come on, pull together. And I, I'm hugely encouraged when I pray with others. Um, for our, what's going on globally. Finally, though, and I will um, come into land on this um, uh, just for the last minute or so, I do want to say that when we live in a multicultural city, a cosmopolitan city like Rome or Edinburgh, actually we have an extraordinary opportunity right on our doorstep. It's a marvellous thing, actually. God's purpose for humanity is, is that the nations would worship alongside the people of Israel, worship around his king. And we live in one of the places where the nations flood in. It's a glorious thing, actually, even in the last couple of months, um, in terms of people who've just turned up on Sunday, having listened in or been looking for a church or just curious what's going on, been all sorts of nationalities represented. So it's a marvelous thing for us to to share the good news of Jesus with the nations on our doorstep. Whether that's praying for Chatterbox, that that would be um, full of folks from all sorts of nations being welcomed and um, having friendships built and and the hope of Jesus shared. Or five-a-side football or Sundays or hopefully all sorts of ways we are able to engage with the communities around us. Because I really do hope that Romans has been causing us to not be ashamed of God's gospel but to know it is his power for salvation for everyone who believes. And it's his plan for the world. That's the encouragement for me personally. Uh, Next time I'm just getting involved in um, some Saturday football with my daughter to to get to know folk at school, parents and others. Um, And uh, often when I'm going, I'm praying that there'll be a chance to, to speak about Jesus or to share something of the hope and the good news I know. Um, and usually I'm thinking, oh, I must do it because it's my duty. I must do it because it's my duty. And sometimes, in a better moment, I'm thinking, I must do it because I love them. I must do it because I love them. But then 
after this passage, I'm going to say God's purpose is that he gets the glory. And that's what matters. So I'm praying that I'll be able to glorify God in what I say on the sidelines. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray simply that you would line our hearts up with yours. Thank you so much that Paul was lined up with you, and so the gospel got to Europe, and we're the beneficiaries of that. Thank you so much that the Lord Jesus was lined up with you, your son, and became a servant both to Israel and the nations, and we're the beneficiaries of that. And we pray so much that you would line our hearts up, that we might speak of your glory in the nations, speak of the hope of Jesus. We pray that for this church family here, with the nations around us, and we pray for all of our national and global partners around the world, that they would speak of Jesus. And we pray, as you've promised, proving your truthfulness, we pray that many would come through us to worship around the throne of Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.